I want to start off by giving you a scenario. I want you to envision two people who both consider themselves Christians. Both attend church every Sunday, and they rarely miss, if ever. They sit in the front row. They're not the back row Baptist trying to hide, but they're happy to be there. They come to the evening service. Pretty much any time the doors are open, they're there. Both these people also love to sing. Some people during singing, they just kind of mouth the words and stand there lamely. But these people love to sing out loud to the Lord with their hearts. They're faithful givers. They regularly give a solid 10% every week to the Lord. When missionaries come around, they give even more. If there are needs at church, they're happy to help out from yard work or cleaning. They love to serve. Additionally, both of them read their Bibles regularly. They're on a reading plan. They're trying to get through the Bible in a year. It's about 30 solid minutes a day. They add to that Bible studies. They go to at least one a week studying the Bible regularly. Both these people pray. They keep a prayer list. They're praying for others. When, when the church has a prayer meeting where other people see that as a good time to ditch and go to the movies, they, they, they love to show up. They want to pray. Both of these are moral people. They don't have any nasty habits. They're not drunkards. They don't, they don't smoke. They don't swear. They don't watch too much TV. Never any bad movies. Same goes for their families. Their spouses are great. Their kids are great. They're well-trained. They're well-behaved. They have a great marriage. Not on the rocks, but things are going well. In general, these are just two great people. Nice people. Someone you'd want to be a friend with. Easy to talk to. Fun to be around. And they sound great. Sound like a couple of great people. And they're almost identical in their perceived godliness there's just one main difference between the two one main difference it's that one of them is going to heaven and the other is going to hell and you heard me right one of these two is saved and the other is not and so my question for you is how can this be given this scenario Can you come up with any explanation for this? Any at all? Do you have any reasoning, any explanation for how these two people who seem so similar could wind up in two vastly different places? Does this even seem possible to you? Do you find yourself at a loss? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, how how can that be possible? That doesn't make sense. Both people seem like such good Christians. They're so upright. They both look like they're walking the walk. And maybe you're thinking, wow, if one of these two is is going to hell and they look so godly, what chance do I have? Let me just say this. If you have no idea how this could be possible, how this could be true, how one of these two people who seem so good could still wind up apart from God, then you'd better pay attention today. Because today, we're going to find out how this could be true from the mouth of Jesus himself. And let me also say you had really better pay attention today because if you don't get this straight, what we're going to talk about today straight, that you run the risk of being like the person who goes to church their whole life, who goes through all the motions, but still ends up not knowing God, separated from God. How could this be? How could this be possible? Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to find out. Mark chapter 7. We're going through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings, as you all know, and we've got the first six chapters under our belt. 
Christ's official ministry on earth was roughly three years long. Mark, he only tells us a very little about Christ's first year, which took place mostly in the south, in Judea. He picks it up mostly with his second year. Chapters 1 through 6 mostly cover Christ's second year of ministry. He's up in Galilee. His new home base is Capernaum. He's ministering in the north. But recently we've turned a corner. We've entered Christ's third and final year of ministry and life because from one year from now, the next Passover, he will be in Jerusalem and he will die on the cross. For now, though, we see him. He's still in Galilee. He's around the lake. He's at the height of popularity. But that's going to change, too, because we're going to start to observe a steady decline in his support, a steady rise in his opposition. He still draws a crowd, but not like before. And pretty soon, the crowds will leave him. Jesus will return the favor. He leaves them. He starts spending more and more of, time, more and more of his time with his 12 disciples. But at the moment, right now, Mark 7, we find a rare teaching section in Mark, because Mark, it's the action gospel. It's like an action movie. It's all action scenes, very little dialogue, and only a few key places does Mark include these long teaching sections from Jesus, and we have one of them here in Mark chapter 7. It's a lengthier teaching time. It takes place some time after the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. We don't know exactly when or where. Passover has passed. We do know that. Most likely he's back in Capernaum, but we don't know for sure. But either way, as we turn to Mark 7, we have this new context, and we find a group of Jews, fresh out of Jerusalem, coming to see Jesus, coming with some questions. But it's not quite what you might think. And this is where we want to pick things up now as we enter Mark chapter 7. The first 23 verses all go together, forming this teaching time of Christ and his response to these questioning Jews. Today, we're only going to tackle the first 13 verses. We'll pick up the rest next week. And again, due to length, just for the sake of time, we'll read this through as we go. We'll just watch this scene unfold for us in real time. But like I said, you you want to pay attention to all of our time together, but especially to this one, because this is some of the most relevant teaching to the church today and, and all the Gospels, direct, so straight for us, still applies in a profound way. So... Let's begin in Mark chapter 7. Just to help you follow along, I'll give you a a little descriptive outline. So let's begin with this. Number one, a plotting visit. It starts off with a plotting visit. And let's start in verse 1. Just to begin. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem. And you can stop there. You know, again, we don't know exactly where Jesus is right now for sure. But whatever the case, he has some visitors. A gang of scribes and Pharisees comes to him and they surround him, presumably while he's teaching one afternoon. And we haven't seen these guys interact with Jesus since back in Mark chapter 3. And that didn't go so well. If you remember, back in Mark 3, the scribes were so upset with Jesus that they claimed he was possessed by Satan. And the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus that they began to conspire to kill him. So they didn't part on the best of terms back in Mark chapter 3. And just briefly, that reminds you who these two groups are, in case you forgot. Starting with the scribes. The scribes are the law experts. They're the, the lawyers. They devote themselves to knowing and interpreting Jewish law. And they're also experts in dealing with violations of the Jewish law. If there is some dispute over their laws, 
the scribes would be the ones to settle it. And the Pharisees, in turn, it's not so much a profession as a political and religious party. You belong to the party of the Pharisees. The word Pharisee means separated one. And that's what they're all about. They, they sought to separate themselves from all things and all people deemed unclean and to live lives of extreme holiness. And they, they, they pursued that holiness by keeping the law. They took their observation of the law to a whole new level. It is because of their extreme devotion to the law that they had this kind of righteous religious authority. And they lorded that authority over the people through religious guilt. They were backed by the scribes. And really, many of the Pharisees were scribes by trade. There's a lot of overlap between the two. And you have some of these scribes and Pharisees scattered all throughout the Holy Land. But most of them lived in Jerusalem. Because if you want to be really holy, you've got to live in the holy city. And that's where these guys are coming from as they visit Jesus. They're coming from Jerusalem. But their visit to Jesus is not accidental, and nor is it leisurely. They're on a mission. These men have been sent from the religious authorities in Jerusalem to find some grounds for pressing charges against Jesus. They're already set on destroying him. That's, that's been settled a while ago. Now they just need some legitimate grounds, they think, to, to persecute him, to, or rather to prosecute him and discredit him in the public's eyes. And as you probably already know, these guys, they don't like Jesus. They hate him. And you might wonder why. Jesus just did good things. He's healing people, teaching. Why would they hate him? Well, it's because he exposed their hypocrisy. He tore down their self-righteousness. He undermined their influence. He called into question everything they taught. The Pharisees, they used the law like a chain around the people's neck to bind them into submission through religious guilt. But Jesus was breaking that chain, and they didn't like that. So they want to take Jesus down. And since Jesus was so popular, they knew that they had to discredit him in the eyes of the public, in the eyes of the people. They had to catch him violating some of their laws so that they could make him out to be a false teacher. And that's why these guys are here, these scribes, these Pharisees, they were sent to catch Jesus in a violation and you can be sure that these, these lawyer types, they were the best of the best. These guys, they had to be the top experts in the law, like the star lawyer who never loses a case. And they're sent to go find something against Jesus to report back, and they can bring him down. It's like a few years ago, some environmentalists in Ecuador, they filed a suit against Chevron for some damage caused by oil exploration and extraction and and what do you think Chevron did in response? It wasn't long before the, this mega corporation, they filed a countersuit. They sent their biggest, their best lawyers to go after the environmentalists and to, to take them down, anyone who sought to oppose them and, and their system. That's kind of like what these scribes and Pharisees are up to. They're, they're trying to find charges against Jesus, no matter how small the violation, to discredit him as a teacher before the people. And it's not long before their little visit their plotting visit pays off because they soon catch some of Christ's disciples breaking the law. Let's keep reading now. Mark chapter 7. Let's look at verse 1 again. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and, verse 2, had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. 
This is secondly a peculiar complaint. Secondly, a peculiar complaint. First off, I hope you, hopefully you can just see for yourselves how lame their complaint is, just given what Jesus just did with bread. They're complaining about bread. What did Jesus just do featuring some bread? He miraculously multiplied it to feed a crowd of thousands. This is one of his most amazing miracles where he put the power of the ultimate power of God on display, the power to create out of nothing. And so you'd think these religious leaders, they'd want to know about that. They'd have some questions about that. They'd want to see that. Can you do that thing with the bread again? But no, they're totally oblivious to the true signs of God that Christ was working. And instead they focus all of their attention on inconsequential matters. They just forget the fact that Jesus just created bread out of thin air. They're more concerned that his disciples are eating bread without washing their hands. Now, regarding this hand washing, you might think that the Pharisees are part of the CDC, trying to bust the disciples for their poor hygiene habits, like they're doing something against code. It's like the restaurant chef who doesn't wash his hands after using the bathroom. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I guess he strikes a chord with some of you. (laughs) But this complaint has nothing to do with hygiene. This is talking about a ceremonial hand washing. And the Jews at the time, especially anyone who wanted to be holy, commonly practiced washing yourself ritually before eating a meal. This is part of their law, actually. You had to do this if you wanted to be righteous. And Christ's disciples were in violation. So they, were, they, were, they had it. They had enough. They were going to bust him over this. Now before we get to that, actually, it, it kind of seems like we could use a little more background on this hand washing. And that's, that is the case. Mark gives us a little bit more background in verses 3 through 4. And so we find thirdly now a pharisaical background of a plotting visit, a peculiar complaint. Thirdly, a pharisaical background, verse 3 and 4. It gives a little parenthetical note. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Now, the original audience of Mark and his gospel was largely Gentile Christians in the city of Rome. And so Mark, he doesn't expect these Gentiles to be up to par on all the minutiae of Jewish law. That's why he's adding a few notes here just to explain why, why this is a big deal. He's filling them in on why lack of hand washing was an issue. And we learn that to the Pharisees and all the Jews, at least again, anyone who wanted to be holy, washing was a big deal. This was a serious part of their tradition, their law. Before they ate a meal, they washed their hands. When they came back from some public place like the market, they washed up again. And it's not hygiene, it's, it's a ceremonial washing. And the issue is that when you're at the market, your chance of rubbing up against a Gentile or touching something unclean was greater. So as a rule, whenever they came back, they would wash to cleanse themselves from whatever defilement they incurred. And they're not worried about dirt. This is, a, again, a ceremonial defilement. That's why they're washing cups and pitchers and pots. They're not scrubbing them after they're dirty just to clean like a dishwasher. 
Is anything that could or was ceremonially unclean had to be made clean again, according to their Jewish law. This really is just the beginning of a long list of very special rules and regulations they had. And the vast majority of these, by this time, they weren't coming from the Old Testament. They're coming from, what does he say in verse 3? This tradition of the elders. Tradition of the elders. And that's where these rules on washing came from. Not the Old Testament, but the traditions of the elders. And do you know what that is? Do you know what that's referring to when he says the traditions of the elders? I want to fill you in because you, you need to know what he's referring to here. Remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were exiled. They lost the land. They lost the temple. They lost everything. They were taken captive. And you remember why that happened? The Lord told them it's because they had abandoned God. They had abandoned his word. They were worshiping other gods. They forsook all of his commandments. And so God brought upon them all the curses he warned them of. The nation was in shambles. Over time, though, God allowed some Jews to return to the land and they started over. Now, at that point, they recognized that Israel was judged for their disobedience. They broke God's law, God's word, and they, they didn't want that to ever happen again. They knew that they were exiled because they violated his commands. And they're like, we, we need to never do that again. So they resolved to now strictly follow the commandments. But they wanted to take this even further. They wanted to even prevent themselves from ever getting close to violating God's commandments. And how do you do this? Well, they did this by making more laws. Let's make some more laws. And they said to keep a fence around God's commands that we won't even get close to breaking them. It's like picture the steep cliffs off of Big Sur, which I think you all know. And what is keeping you from driving over the edge to your death? Which is that little guardrail at the edge. That's it. And if you blow past that, you're, you're done for. That's all you have. So why not make more guardrails? They keep people further and further away from the edge. Because that way, they'll never go off the edge. Even if they blow past a few guardrails, they're still safe. And see, that's some of the initial thinking behind what they did in expanding upon God's law. And in a way, it sounds commendable. They're just trying to be zealous in keeping God's law and not wanting to break it. But as you can guess, things got out of hand. Over time, an entirely new law developed. A whole new set of rules and regulations that expanded upon God's law in the Old Testament. And this law became known as the Mishnah, if you've ever heard that word before. And they believed you know, it was filling in the gaps everywhere the Old Testament was silent. We need something more. We need to know how to apply this. And so they created this new tradition. The problem was that this new law quickly became more authoritative than God's actual word. God's written word, the Old Testament, started taking a back seat to these new man-made traditions. In fact, it was starting to be overturned. The new laws only ended up obscuring and perverting God's original law. And over time, this huge religious system was built that essentially replaced God's word. It missed the intent of God's word as well. Because after all, the law that God gave through Moses in the Old Testament Was it ever intended to be a standard of righteousness that if you kept, you would earn your way into heaven? That was never the intent 
of God's law in the Old Testament. It's never a means of righteousness. The law was given to guide, but to convict, because no one can keep God's law. It's not possible. But the Jews, they started to create a new law, and they made an attainable standard. And if you tried hard enough, you could keep this standard, and you could earn, supposedly, your way into heaven. This is what today we call legalism. They replaced God's law with their own law, and they sought to earn righteousness by following their laws. Now, we'll have more to say about legalism in a little bit, but this is, a, this is background, and this little bit of background now should help you make sense of what happens next. Because these scribes and Pharisees, they begin their questioning of Jesus. And now with this, this legalism background in mind, you're going to understand why they're saying what they're saying. Let's move on to number four, a pointed question. Fourthly now, a pointed question coming from verse 5. It says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and eat their bread with impure hands? You can tell. What's their concern? Are they concerned that the disciples violated God's word? No. They're only concerned that they violated their tradition, the traditions of the elders. And all these rules on washing, they're not coming from the Old Testament. The the Old Testament only prescribed this washing for the priests, not the common people. But it's no surprise to find the scribes and Pharisees only concerned with their traditions, to uphold their traditions. Really, though, they don't care about the disciples. The question is about the disciples, but they're asking Jesus. They, they don't care about the disciples. They're trying to use them to get to him. Their violation reflects negatively on Christ because he was their rabbi, remember? He was their teacher. So if they're violating the law, what does that say about Jesus? It shows that he disregards the law. He's a lawless teacher. What kind of a rabbi is this? You have to see this as a loaded barbed question trying to hook Jesus and shame him as a false teacher. But do you think Jesus is going to go along for that ride? I don't think so. They're so far off, he doesn't even humor them with an answer. He's not going to answer their question. Their question is so bogus, he disregards it. And he jumps straight to rebuke. This is number five, a prophetic rebuke. A prophetic rebuke. Verses 6 through 8. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. Here Jesus is quoting some words from the prophet Isaiah. And they have a very fitting application to the current situation because these scribes and Pharisees are acting just as hypocritical as the Jews in Isaiah's day. And the word hypocrite has such a great word picture behind it because the word originally in ancient Greek, it referred to an actor on stage in a a play. The actor was known as a hypocrite. And what it meant is back then they didn't have makeup. They weren't wearing makeup to become a character in a play. They wore a mask. And so you have a guy wearing a mask representing a character. 
On the outside, because of the mask, you see him in one way, but under the mask, who he really is, is an entirely different person. It's a way of describing someone who's two-faced, who's different one way than they are in another world. And that's still how we conceive of hypocrites, someone who is a one way here, another way there, two-faced. And specifically for these Jews, Jesus points out a great dichotomy between their lips and their hearts. Because they were worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts were far away. They were great at giving lip service, but it was all a sham. Because deep down in their core, in their hearts, they didn't know God. They didn't love God. They weren't serving God. They were serving themselves. They were loving and living for themselves. And so even though their lips moved during worship songs and prayers and scripture reading, God did not care. God doesn't care. He doesn't hear it because their hearts are not engaged. And they're already even following the true God and his true commands. They have swapped God's actual word with their own tradition. And they thought they were adding to and helping God's law by this man-made tradition. But in reality, they were setting it aside. They were rejecting God. They were rejecting his law with their law. And they were making themselves God. They were seeking to sit on the throne. They can pretend to be as close to God as they want. They can even fool themselves. But in reality, what does Jesus say about their worship? In vain. It says in verse 7, in vain. Do they worship me? It means nothing. It's not worship. It's a false worship. All their prayers, all their scripture reading, all their tithes, all their sacrifices, it was worthless to God because their hearts were far from Him. Do you understand this? That that God is not interested in the external if the heart is not engaged. It's not like what Jesus is saying is new. This is, this, God's been saying this all throughout the Old Testament. Christ here quotes Isaiah. After all, the Jews should have known, what's the greatest command? The number one, top of the list. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And if that's missing, all your little works and acts mean nothing to God. And there are many verses like this they should have known, but by now they had long ago replaced God's real word with their own tradition, and they missed God. They even went so far as to use their new rules and regulations to overturn God's actual commands, and Jesus exposes this now. Number six, a phony loophole. Jesus points out a phony loophole in their system. Verses 9 through 12. He continues, and he was saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. 
But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. What is Jesus saying here? He's giving an illustration of how these Jews used their man-made tradition to actually overturn God's real commands. They actually justified disobedience to God's real commands because of their little tradition, their man-made laws. He starts by quoting Moses. Remember, that's the guy who God actually did speak through on Mount Sinai. He repeats the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. He repeats the dire consequences for violating that commandment. Both these come from Exodus, and they're teaching how children are to honor and respect their parents. And the point is, this is really important to God. Do you understand that? Do you realize how important it is that you honor your parents is to God? It's so important, he included it in his top ten. Ten commandments are not the only ones, but look, it made number five on the list. And it's so important to God that if you violate it, at least under Israel's theocracy, the penalty was death. The point is, God cares that you honor your parents, does he not? So do you think God would be happy if you just very nonchalantly disregarded that command? You just set it aside. Not going to be very happy with that. But that's precisely what they were doing. They took something so essential to God and they just overturned it. Jesus cites their law of Korban, which this is a vow that a son would make. The word means given to God. A son would make a vow before the Lord. He would say all of his property and all of his wealth was Korban. It's given to God. I'm giving it all to the Lord. This is a vow. And therefore, none of it could be used to help his aging parents. And this is quite a loophole because when he made this vow, he didn't actually have to part with his money and his property right then. He could keep it, use it until he died. When he died, his, his wealth would pass most likely to the temple. But during life, he was prevented from using it anywhere else, including his parents. He actually couldn't use it to help his parents if he made this vow. The vow couldn't be undone. So even if the son wanted to undo the vow, the priests and the rabbis would by no means permit him, especially when filling the temple's coffers were at stake. And so they promoted, they upheld such false vows, even at the expense of God's actual commandment. But this is a phony loophole. You can't get around God's true commands like this. Neither God nor Christ recognize such lawyering. But this is typical among the Jews. This is not just one example. There's many ways in which they just totally overturned what God said because of their man-made tradition. In this system, their tradition has replaced God's word and they have replaced God. And all of this in the end amounts to number seven. Lastly, a pernicious error. And that word just means deadly. But a pernicious or deadly error. Let's finish it off in verse 13. After saying all this, he concludes, Thus, they were invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. And talking about this tradition, did God hand it down? No, 
they handed it down. Was this God's tradition? No, this was their tradition, man-made. But they elevated it above God's word, and this is a deadly error. It's the root of legalism. And do you understand that? That word, that concept, that error, the error of legalism? You're familiar with that? Because you really need to be. It's exactly what's happening here. There are two basic definitions of legalism. The first is where you create your own law, your own standard of righteousness, which supersedes and effectively replaces God's standard. And the second is where you seek to earn salvation by keeping that law. You seek to earn righteousness by meeting your own standard. And these are the two ugly heads of legalism, and the Jews were guilty of both. They got the content of God's law wrong, and they got the intent of God's law wrong. What's the intent? You can't be saved by keeping the law, either God's law or your own law. There's no salvation in the law because we've all already violated the law. We break God's law all the time and we're already guilty and condemned by the law. There's no salvation there. The standard of perfect righteousness given in God's law, it's unattainable. That's part of the point. You cannot be perfect by God's standard. You don't have a a chance. But that's the allure of legalism. Because if you create your own standard, you can make it attainable. That way, if you keep your own laws, if you really work to keep your own laws, you can deem yourself holy by your own standard. That's exactly what these Jews did. And I hope you can see what's wrong with this. This is futile because there's no justification by keeping any law, either God's law or even your own law. God already knows that we cannot be saved by the law. That's why he sent Jesus to die for us, to pay the penalty of the law for us, because we're under the law's curse. That's why salvation its always, always has been and still is by faith not the works of the law. You must in humility cry out to God in faith to save you through Jesus Christ. And that cry must come from the heart. God is seeking for people who seek him from the heart. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said back in John 4, 24? He said that God is looking for true worshipers. And true worshipers are those who worship him in Spirit and truth. And we studied that before. Do you remember what that means? Spirit and truth. Christ is teaching you first the right location of worship. What is the right location of worship? He says it's anywhere. So long as your heart is right before the Lord, you can worship God anywhere in spirit. Secondly, he teaches the right content or object of worship. And that's God. It's the one true God. You have to get God right to worship him. And once again, these Jews got both of these wrong. They distorted the one true God with their traditions. And even then, they were worshiping him with lip service only. They did not seek God from the heart, but they replaced grace with the law. And for this deadly error, Jesus saved some of his harshest words of condemnation for the Pharisees. 
We will see that next week. But you need to beware this error. Beware the pernicious, deadly error of the scribes and Pharisees. Beware legalism. Beware false worship. Beware lip service and hypocrisy. Beware missing the heart worship that pleases God. And beware missing salvation by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. You are meant to see these guys in action and see the ugly heads of legalism at work and run away and avoid their error and not fall into the same trap. But you would be foolish to think that the exact same error doesn't occur today because it does. There are Pharisees all around us in the church, maybe even some sitting among us today. These are people who have, even unbeknownst to them, replaced God's word with their traditions and they use their man-made rules and regulations as the entrance exam into heaven. If you don't conform to their standard, well, you're not among God's people. Give you some examples. Consider, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. Catholics are a modern day exact parallel to the Jewish legalists and Pharisees. It's striking. What have Catholics done throughout the ages? They took God's word and then they added to it a whole new set of rules and regulations that were man-made, just like the Jews. And then they distorted the gospel by seeking to be justified before God by keeping this man-made set of rules and regulations, just like the Jews. They committed the exact same two major errors of the Pharisees. And just think, Catholicism, Catholicism today is this huge religious system. And so much of it, when you start to, to study it, it's not found in the Bible. It's just not coming from the Bible. For example, purgatory, nowhere in the Bible. In fact, it directly contradicts the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Praying to saints, venerating saints, nowhere in the Bible. Every Christian is called a saint. And praying to or worshiping any human is idolatry and blasphemy. Let's talk about worshiping Mary. Nowhere in the Bible. Mary's immaculate conception. Nowhere in the Bible. Mary's sinlessness. Nowhere in the Bible. Mary's saving power, being a co-redemptress, being the queen of heaven. Nowhere in the Bible. And where are they getting all this stuff? It's not the Bible. It's man-made tradition. It's the teaching of the church fathers throughout the early centuries of this uh, millennia, last past few millennia. We could keep going. Confession to a priest, nowhere in the Bible. You don't need a priest. Christ is the one mediator between God and man. Saying, Hail Mary's and our fathers to earn forgiveness, nowhere in the Bible. In fact, you don't need anything. Christ has already forgiven you and will if you go to him. Celibacy of priests and nuns, nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the Bible explicitly forbids this. You get the point. I mean, we could keep going, but Catholics today, just like the Jews, have created their own system that goes way beyond Scripture. It's just based on human tradition, but they have elevated it above God's Word. They've replaced grace with law, and they have fallen into the same double-headed error of legalism. They've replaced God's Word with their own standard, and then they seek to be justified by keeping that standard doesn't work. You stand 
condemned. And that's why today, sadly, so many Catholics, just like the Pharisees, even though they're so convinced they know God, they don't. The words of Christ in verses 6 through 8 apply directly to them. But don't think it's just Catholics who can fall into the trap of legalism because it can affect many Protestants as well. Think back to the fundamentalist movement of the early 1900s. Heard of that before? And back then, especially, the world was growing darker and darker, more wicked. So a bunch of Christians, they banded together and they wanted to take a stand for the faith, take a stand for the fundamentals. And that's great. They, they proclaimed the fundamentals of the faith, the deity of Jesus, the resurrection. Good stuff. Their theology was great. But in a desire to separate themselves from the evil of the world, they started to create some rules. They started to make some regulations. And you could say their intentions were good. You know, they, just, they wanted Christians to be more holy. They wanted Christians to be separate from the evil world. That's good intentions. But they fell into the same trap of legalism because they began to seek holiness not from the heart, but by keeping a man-made set of laws. As a result, anything deemed worldly became sin, became against their law. Dancing, drinking, dating, smoking, all became sin. Going to the movies, sin. Listening to worldly music, sin. Wearing shorts, sin. Women wearing pants, sin. I'm pretty sure these can't be found in the Bible. And, you know, there's a lot of things that can't be found in the Bible. We are left to apply the principles of Scripture to our current culture. That's okay. We must apply Scripture to our lives today. However, so many of these fundamentalist churches created their own traditions, their own unwritten law, because Scripture was silent on this matter, that matter, what type of music should we listen to? The Bible doesn't say. And they they convince themselves, well, we have to make some rules about this. It's going to make us holier. It, it always starts that way. But soon in these fundamentalist churches, how did they start evaluating people? How did they start to judge people? Was it through the lens of the gospel or through the lens of their own laws? It wasn't by scripture. It wasn't by a person's heart. It was by man-made tradition. If you conform to their traditions, you were saved. If not, you weren't. So if anyone danced, smoked, drank wine, and had a tattoo, they just had to be going to hell because that's not what a Christian is. And I hope you see the error with that. And the trap of legalism was sprung. And it still happens today. Even in good churches, people can fall prey to the trap of legalism. Just think. Ask yourself, what makes someone a Christian? What, what badges do you use to identify someone as a Christian? Is it church attendance, going to multiple services, singing loudly, offering money, serving, volunteering, going to Bible study, reading your Bible 30 minutes a day, praying, not watching bad movies? Does that make you a Christian? Remember the scenario I gave you at the beginning? Two people, both living that way living seemingly godly, holy lives. On the outside, they look great, yet one of them is unsaved. And the question was, how could that possibly be? And I hope by now you can see the answer. It's a simple answer. One person had a genuine heart for God, 
a true saving faith in Jesus that sprang from a brokenness over sin, a desire for mercy, the other person did not. The other person was just going through the motions. And it's easy to do. They thought going through these motions would save them, would make them right before God. It makes them a Christian. I do this stuff, I'm a Christian. I'm in. It's not what makes you in. On the outside they look great, but on the inside, one had a genuine heart for the Lord, and the other was clueless, did not. In the end, they're just serving themselves. And this happens all the time because people lose sight of what matters before God. What is he after? Your heart. And don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm saying church attendance and reading the Bible and praying and giving. All that stuff is not important. No, that stuff is really, really important. But those things are meant to be the results, the fruit of a changed life, a transformed heart that knows the Lord. When you know and you come to desire the Lord from a genuine heart, you're going to read, you're going to pray, you're going to do all that stuff. Why? Not because you have to, because you feel guilted, you think it's going to get you in the door, but you want to. God's your Lord and Savior. You love Him. Why wouldn't you want to be with the saints and give to Him and serve Him? These things are great, but don't put the cart in front of the horse. Those things don't make you in. They don't make you a Christian. You can attend church all you want. You can read the Bible through and through. But if your heart isn't in it and you're not devoted to the Lord from the heart and a true faith, you're still lost. And this is how many people can sit in excellent churches their entire lives. They can go through all the motions and they still go to hell. Why? The same reason as the Pharisees who thought they were the most righteous people in the land, but they did not know the Lord. So what can you do with it, about this? The big question now, what, what's your response? What do you do if this is you? Is this you? How can you even tell? And the answer here, the response, it's the same for every single one of us. No matter where you are, same response to this for all of us. And it is, examine your heart. All of you, myself included, must examine your heart. Peering into your heart, do you know the Lord from your heart? Do you cherish Him in your heart? The question you're asking yourself is not, are you perfect? You're not perfect. You can't be perfect. And by that standard, well, yeah, we're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites because none of us can even perfectly keep God's standards now. But the question you're asking is, do you truly love and desire and seek the Lord from the heart? If not, there's still hope. And that it is to repent. To repent, turn to the Lord. If, there, if your life is characterized by sin that is inconsistent, turn away from it. Seek him while he may be found. Cry out to him for mercy because you can't keep this standard. Pray that he will save and change you and he will. God loves forgiving, repentant hypocrites. Turn away from the sin in your life and pursue the Lord earnestly and he will make your life new and give you a heart of flesh. Take out your heart of stone and you will experience finally the true joy of the Lord. That's when the burden of the law, the burden even of the Christian life, goes away. It's not a burden anymore. It's not meant to be. 
It's not about trying to be good enough to get in. It's about glorifying and enjoying the God who let you in undeserved. Do not trust in the law to save you, either God's law or your own man-made law. Don't trust yourself. You need to trust in Christ alone. Let me finish by reading for you Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9. Same, same conclusion Paul came to. He was a Pharisee. He was the grandest of hypocrites. But what did he do when he understood the fault of legalism? Philippians 3, verse 7. And speaking of his past, he says, But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He's talking about his works, his deeds, his self-righteousness. Like that's it's gone. It's it's rubbish that I may gain Christ. Verse nine, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, on the basis of faith. I pray those may be your words as well, that you cry out to the Lord who has saved you, not based on your righteousness through the law, but based on the righteousness that comes from God alone through faith. May that be your prayer as well. Let us pray. Lord God, we, we do pray. That is our prayer now. And we can say that as a praise, thanking you and praising you as being the God who saved us not on the basis of deeds done according to the law. For by the law, no man can be saved or justified. We cannot be made right with you. We're not perfect. We can't be, and we violated. We, we stand guilty and condemned by the law. We will meet you only as a judge. But our only hope is your given grace that you sent Christ to live and die, to pay the penalty for the law for us, to rise again and offer us forgiveness. That's our only hope, and we confess that now. We trust in him for our righteousness before you. And we do that from the heart. I pray that prayer for myself, for all of us, that everyone here is, is at that same place. And if not, you convict and soften their heart. Lord, you must open their, their, the eyes of their heart to see you, to behold you, to value you, to desire you, to cry out to you. And I pray you do that now. And as we come to that love for you, Lord, may our lives be filled with the fruit of the Spirit the evidences of a godly life. May we enjoy the disciplines of reading and praying and going to church. All that that stuff is good, but it comes out of a heart that is pleased with you. And I pray you keep that in front of us always. Keep us free from these traps of legalism. Even in this church, there is always the danger. And keep us away. We trust you and, and your perfect provision in Christ forever. We thank you for him now. It is in your name we pray. Amen.